Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping in our regular Thursday morning time slot this week on April 26th. As they say in the business, news happens fast here in Washington, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Sarah Cliff of Vox.com. Good morning. Alice Alstein of Talking Points Memo. Hello. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hi there. So no lack of news on the health front this week. While I was making our topic list, I guess on Monday, I thought we'd be talking about the confirmation hearing for Dr. Ronnie Jackson, the White House physician, to be the next secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. But that hearing didn't happen. And as of this morning, Dr. Jackson's nomination isn't happening either after allegations arose over some apparently unprofessional behavior on his part. But while this seems like just one more scandal in the scandal-ridden Trump cabinet, there's a lot more at stake here, and that's what's going to become of the VA. So who wants to start with sort of what this all might mean for, you know, the nation's veterans who are expecting to get health care? Yeah, so I think um, the Ronnie Jackson nomination was a bit of an odd pick to me from the start, not, um, you know, just because of these allegations, but largely due to his lack of managerial experience. Um, This is someone who's worked as the White House physician. When you look at other people who have come into this position, a lot of them have run hospital systems, have run large chunks of the American military. Um, But here you had someone who didn't really have that sort of experience coming into the nomination. And, um, you know, my colleague at Vox, Matt Iglesias, wrote a great piece about, you know, even if these allegations that we've dealt with over the past week weren't true of drunkenness at work and misprescribing or, I guess, giving medications without prescriptions to his colleagues, um, he doesn't really have any qualifications um, for this particular type of position. So, And actually, I I have uh, the the section that you were talking about from Matt Iglesias' piece that said, even if the charges against Jackson are entirely false, and we should point out that Jackson does deny the allegations, wasn't drunk on the job and the president likes him is not an appropriate bar for an important substantive position that requires considerable management skill and subject matter expertise. Right. I mean, we're talking about the largest healthcare system in the United States, one that is serving millions of people, has hospitals all across the country, you know, is bigger than any private healthcare system. And as we've seen in the past, you know, mismanagement can lead to some very human consequences for the people who are seen there. And right now, it doesn't seem like there's a clear front runner, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, we're taping this hours after we've learned <laughs> that a nomination has been withdrawn, and I'm sure something will shake out. But um, it's a it's a pretty important position. And now, you know, we we don't have a clear sense of who is going to be taking it. And and the predecessor, I mean, David Shulkin was apparently, from what we can tell, pushed out because of his uh, resistance to privatization uh, efforts, right? Uh, Yes. And that's definitely, you know, my inbox is full of uh, advocacy groups warning and saying, you know, we need to be vigilant against future attempts to privatize no matter who they nominate. And I, I think it's just worth noting, though, that the, some of the allegations 
against uh, Dr. Jackson did focus on his management skills and they were not flattering. Even managing the small team that he was in charge of, uh, folks said that everyone was constantly walking on eggshells and living in fear and he fought with the other leaders and they felt like the children of divorcing parents and <laughs> there were allegations of retaliation. So I, I think that... Um, what little we might know about his management experience did not speak well, and this would be management. The job, had he been confirmed, would have been management on a much larger level. Yeah, 375,000 employees of the Department of Veterans Affairs. And not all of them healthcare. we should point out. The, the VA does things other than healthcare. Right, and and White House reporters have been saying this week that really the, the White House has no plan B for, for if this nomination went down, uh, the president sort of threw Dr. Jackson under the bus in a press conference saying, well, I stand with him, but I would totally understand if he were to drop out. Um, (laughs) You know, nominating him without vetting him, not not being prepared for all these things coming to light. Uh, And then, you know, sort of saying, oh, well, it's it's his call if he wants to drop out or not. I think, too, like what kind of message does that send to the veterans when we've heard coming out through this whole this whole debacle that, you know, the president just sort of tweeted this out and didn't tell anyone when he nominated him in in the first place. And this is obviously, you know, he may not the president may not have known of all of these allegations, but he you know. He knew that he didn't have the management skills and or, or at least had never been able to put them on display if he did have them. Um, I think he's I think the largest group he managed was like 70 people. Right. So, yeah, he 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 didn't have the the credentials and he just, you know, the president sort of seems to have made a very rash decision. And this is what kind of message is that sending to you know people who have been on the front lines for for us and what message does it send to potential actually qualified candidates that who exactly my next question <laughs> may may right. indeed be a good fit for this job the message to them is we won't look into your background and we won't prepare you for the confirmation the potentially grueling confirmation process, and, and we, we won't stand behind you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And if something goes wrong, we're going to throw you under the bus. Yep, right. Exactly. And so that that doesn't bring a lot of confidence for people stepping forward to to fill this position. Yeah, that, that I think that in some ways that may be the biggest sort of fallout from this is you know what happens to the to the next person you know who who as you point out could very well be a, you know a very able candidate for this um you know a lot of people have already sort of resisted joining the Trump administration because of the you know per, the perception of turmoil shall we put it that way um and that it's you know it, it's not necessarily the the career burnisher that uh, that going into an administration sometimes is and I, I just keep coming back again and again to the amazing Washington Post report about the office in charge of vetting potential candidates for uh, to lead various agencies and how it's staffed by a bunch of partying 24-year-olds uh, who drink on the job. And so I think that just explains so much of what we see going on. All right. Well, something that actually is happening on Capitol Hill, unlike the the Jackson nomination, um, there are some pretty sizable opioid bills moving in both the House and the Senate. The Senate marked up, I think it was 60-some, a package of 60-some bills in it. A House subcommittee marked up uh, a package of 50-some bills. Um, These are essentially everything lawmakers can think of that might help address the addiction problem in the United States. But it's not at all clear how much these proposals would really help and how they'll be paid for. And this is what the fourth big opioid law in the last couple of years. 
Is this the one that will finally make a dent, or do politicians just want to send the message that they really, really, really care about this really big issue? I think it feels a bit like they're sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks, um, which maybe isn't a terrible thing. Maybe they find something that sticks and it works, but the, the, that's, this is a lot of legislation um, that kind of seems to work around the edges. You know, I think they've had um, the NIH and the FDA and DEA and different agencies tell them we need this these tweaks here and there, different things to be able to do our job to combat this a little bit better. But I, I, am, I think funding obviously is going to be lacking in a lot of this. Um, you know, the administration has put some money towards the opioid response, but these bills won't exactly be able to, to add to that. They're kind of letting the agencies do what they need to do within the confines of the funding they already have. Um, so, although there was a bunch of money in the spending bill that they did, right? Isn't isn't this spending that money? I got this it, in the in the normal process. The, the the authorizing committees do the policy, and then the appropriations committees fund it. That's that's how that would be regular order in Congress. But this is we're we living did, in the yeah, <laughs> we're not living in regular order. But they did this spending bill that that had this big chunk of money that was kind of marked opioids. So I was assuming that this was part of it. Well, I think there um, the agencies are uh, we're expecting that money and have like ways that they want to use it Other and things. and yeah and want you know would sort of need even even more. I guess is the consensus. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but my inbox has been piling up with different press releases of Senator X gets provision Y okay. into the opioid bill. Very bipartisan, too. Very bipartisan, I mean, yes, from you know Republican senators, Democrats. Yeah. Um, so in that way, you know, I think putting any money towards this is probably a positive step, and it is you know interesting to see that this is something in the healthcare space that the two parties can work together on. But on the other hand, it feels more like a hodgepodge of different ideas, kind of this throwing of spaghetti at the wall rather than like a comprehensive plan for like, here is how we think is the best way to treat this. Instead, you know, each senator is boasting a different provision that they championed and got into this larger package. And interestingly, that that bipartisanship started to like show some cracks yesterday as far you know as what uh, energy and commerce was doing and and in the house right and so you know there's the possibility that democrats are kind of rethinking their support of this um as they're talking about the process you know more than now these the bills that they supported and things like that just just to give an idea i have the the press release in front of me from the the senate health committee which marked up the the bigger package on tuesday and they're you know everything from improving post marketing surveillance to putting opioids in what they call blister packs sort of you know th- those things that are really hard to open um, but you know make it make it harder to just you don't want to just have sort of a bottle of pills um clarifying uh, authority for uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection about what they do when they find illicit, so it, it, it illicit, you know, drugs. It, it is this sort of this, a, a lot of little things that reach around the federal government in addition to authorizing money for states and localities. But I think isn't the, I think the bigger problem here is not that people don't want to do something about this. They don't actually know what to do. I think if there's a silver lining, though, it's that they're at least approaching it from a health perspective rather than the Trump administration, which has largely approached the opioid addiction epidemic from uh, a criminal justice and sort of individual moral responsibility perspective. And their their two big initiatives are 
uh, death penalty for drug dealers and some sort of uh, just say no revival campaign ad campaign, uh, neither of which are really looked favorably upon by people who actually understand this issue. So at least Congress is approaching it from let's look at this as a, a health as a disease <laughs> issue. And, and as a healthcare issue, I mean, you know, it, it is a disease, but it's also, you know, as we've talked about before, some of it is, is you know, being facilitated inadvertently by the way the healthcare system works. Mm-hmm. And that, I, th- I think that's one of the, the harder things is that, you know, pe- th- these drugs were, many things were promised about these drugs, including that some of them weren't addictive, and that turned out not to be the case. And which is not to say the people who still don't have, there are a lot of people with a lot of issues with pain and, and something needs to be done for them. Well, and I do think, um, to lawmakers' credit, a little bit when we're seeing them move so quickly with so many things, um, you know, the epidemic is changing pretty quickly, too. We're talking about opioids and some of the stuff on blister packs and different things are, are the actual pills. But what's starting to really kill people at a much larger rate is this illicit, you know, the fentanyl um, and heroin. Um, and so, you know, that's pro- that possibly could require a completely different response at a different time. And so, you know, they, they're going to need to be flexible. And, and I guess we're seeing at least they can move quickly with these. We will not, not that quickly. I think the well, House, the quickly House, yeah. for Congress, quickly Let for like, Congress. Yeah, the House has, has said that it's it hopes to get something to the floor by Memorial Day. Right, I, I and then the, the Senate yet yeah, said, um, you know, later in the summer. So yeah, so you're right on, on, on grading on a curve. It's right. pretty quick. <laughs> So speaking of things that take a while, on the regulatory front this week, the comment period closed for the Trump administration's proposal to allow expanded availability of short-term limited-duration insurance plans. These are sometimes called skinny plans because they often don't cover expensive benefits like, you know, prescription drugs or maternity care or mental health and, right, opioid abuse. It seems that most of the health industry thinks it's a bad idea, too, to allow more of these plans and to allow them to last longer. Is there any chance that these comments are going to actually be taken into account by the Trump administration? Or are they committed to what it is that they say they're going to do? That is an excellent question. I mean, <laughs> technically, they do have to review them and summarize them. So we should see some version of that in the final rule. When you look at a final rule, you often see commenters told us X or Y. They seem pretty clear that this is the approach they want to take to these skinny plans. To make but them more available. To make them much more available. Um, I think one of these, the, the things this indicates, though, is you, you would likely see a counter pressure from states who do have the authority to regulate their market and set up higher standards that would disallow those sorts of plans or put some sort of limits on them. I think one you know report that came out this week that drove home how skinny these plans really are was from the Kaiser Family Foundation, which um, did a survey of what these plans cover, and zero of them covered any maternity benefits. So that's a pretty striking absence. And we're not talking about maternity benefits are hard to get. You just can't get them in the short-term plans. Drug coverage for prescription drugs um, was incredibly skimpy as well. So I think also while we have this rule closing, we really got to look at what is in these plans. And the answer is, um, you know, not much. And depending on where you are, you know, if you really do want to offer people cheaper health insurance and you think that is a better way to structure the market, then I think the Kaiser report suggests this insurance, you know, will indeed be much cheaper. But if your goal is getting people kind of coverage for really basic medical needs, then I think it suggests pretty clearly these plans are not offering that. 
Well, this is sort of the fundamental conundrum that, that you know, that your choice is expensive insurance that covers everything you might need or cheap insurance that doesn't. Um, and well, the then, then the value of insurance. Yeah. what they might need. I mean, that's right. the entire point of insurance. If you, yes, you may not think you need maternity care. <laughs> you may not think you need prescription drugs, but that that's the point of insurance it's supposed to cover. The <laughs> yes, even, even if you're young and healthy, you yes. can get sick, you can get hit by a bus, you yes. can fall off a cliff while you're mountain and climbing. And if you're in one of these short-term plans, you may find yourself deep in medical debt. <laughs> And I think to your point about is there or will they listen to the comments at all? Um, you know, I I don't know this, but maybe there there is a little room for compromise. I think certainly they this is the way that Sarah said that they want to go. This is definitely their their the way they think that the market should go. But I think that you know we saw AHIP suggesting the America's Health Insurance Plan suggesting the Health Insurance Trade Association exactly <laughs> suggesting um, you know maybe make them available for six months instead of was it three hundred and sixty four days that they were going to to do it. Um, so maybe there's some ways that productions in quotes like a little bit could be you know could be worked into that. Um, given all the comments that came in. And we, we should talk about why the insurers are freaked out about the idea of these plans being more widely available. The, 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 it, it could have a, a rather deleterious impact on the the more comprehensive plans. Yeah, I think, I mean, whenever I talk to insurance companies, that they really want an even playing field. They say it's much easier to run a business when the rules are the same for every plan that they sell and that people can't segregate into different kind of groups of risk. There is, you know, a small number of insurance companies that specialize in these short-term plans and they're like gung-ho and like ready for this rule. But I think it's interesting, you know, you see AHIP, you see the Blue Cross Association, very strong opponents of this. Basically, you know, you know, I don't think they were, you know, obviously before they were required to, they did not cover people with pre-existing conditions. But now, you know, that that's going to be the rule for at least some of the market um, and, you know, that they're going to have to cover these essential benefits in some of the market. It's, insurance companies generally would prefer one set of rules to live under versus two sets of rules and not being fully sure who's going to go into which plans, which is for, you know, an actuary, a bit of their, you know, living a nightmare of trying to game those sort of things out. Well, and the worry that the, that the healthy people will go all go into the cheap short-term plans and the people who know they're going to need, you know, you, you're right, you, you can never, you can't always know that you might need something, but some people know that they will. <laughs> those people are going to want the more comprehensive and, plans. And the fear is that some of those people will be completely priced out and won't be able to afford the comprehensive plans that they need and will just go uninsured and the insurance companies would rather have customers than no customers. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that that the, the no customers does not help their business model. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, we will we'll see how that plays out. Um, Alice, while I was in Pennsylvania last week at the Corgi Show, you were in Ohio doing some actual reporting. And it appears that the Medicaid expansion there might be in some peril, depending on what happens in the elections this fall. What did you see? Well, I was talking to a lot of the different candidates for governor on both sides. And uh, it, it's currently considered a, a toss-up state. Ohio is long been swinging back and forth. It, you know, went for Trump, but uh, before that it went for Obama twice. So um, really anyone's guess at this point. Uh, it's still pretty red in a lot of areas. But anyways, the current Republican governor, 
shocked a lot of people by embracing the Medicaid expansion and really has defended it and defended it against attempts by the Republican legislature to chip first. away at it. Yes. It was one of mm-hmm. the John Kasich, of course, who right. ran unsuccessfully for president last yes, time. Yes, and may again. <laughs> um. <laughs> as, as, as what's now a moderate Republican, which is funny because when he was in Congress, he was a very, he was sort of, he was the far right. Now he's a moderate and he hasn't really changed very much. <laughs> right. Which, which I, I, I think it's interesting because uh, Kasich might any day submit this waiver for pretty intense work requirements that are different from other states' work requirements, which I'll get to in a second. And that may seem to be in in conflict with his strong defense of the Medicaid expansion since uh, he went for it in 2013. But that is sort of a vintage case because in the House he was all about work requirements for different forms of the social safety net and welfare. So uh, I, I think it's it's perfectly in keeping with, with his views. Um, but uh, whoever the next governor is will have a lot to say about what happens to the Medicaid expansion in the state. The m- sort of most far-right candidate, uh, the current lieutenant governor, Taylor, uh, she says that she would get rid of it entirely, get rid of the Medicaid expansion entirely. Uh, Mike DeWine, the current attorney general who is running for governor. Former senator, former U.S. senator. Yes, yes. He has, uh, he won't say exactly what he'll do. (laughs) Tried to press him on it, sat down with him, uh, and local outlets have tried to press him on it too. He will not say exactly what he would do in the Medicaid expansion, but he is pro-work requirements, and he told me that he plans if elected governor, to submit a waiver that goes far beyond the one Kasich is about to submit. Um, uh, he did not say what it would entail. I asked, you know, are you thinking lifetime limits? Are you thinking premiums? Are you, What do you think? And he wouldn't say. So something to look at. Um, and on the Democratic side, strong defense of the Medicaid expansion um, and desires to go even further and explore various ways of providing uh healthcare to so, to the people of so Ohio. So what is this that Kasich wants to do? What's his waiver? So it's it's interesting. So it really puts the burden on counties. And I know that's been an issue for other states too, but uh, this, this goes even beyond that. And there are groups that are already saying that they would bring lawsuits similar to the one we are seeing in Kentucky uh, playing out against the work requirements. But basically, uh, unless you can prove... Uh, employment of at least 20 hours a week, you would be sent to your county and they would evaluate you and they would place you in a job placement, you know, for a local nonprofit or with the county itself. And you would have to work up to earning the value of your Medicaid benefits. So you would be working for free, essentially. They would not be paying you. You would not be earning money that you could use to pay rent or buy food or whatever. You would be earning the value of your health care. <laughs> and this is beyond <laughs> what other states have proposed. Do they have a dollar amount in mind or they, I'm sure I'm sure they do. Um and, and and an hour amount and and whatnot. But what these groups that are exploring legal remedies are saying is that it, it shakes out to far below minimum wage. Um and they would challenge it uh, potentially on those grounds. Wow. Anna, you were about to say something. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I was just sort of, um, I hadn't really heard it working like that before, so I was kind of in shock. <laughs> it, it's interesting that this is sort of the new thing. On the other hand, 
Sarah, you've been, and we talked about this when I wasn't here last week, but it was talked about last week. A bunch of other red states are now looking at the potential of expanding Medicaid. Yeah, 2018 Um, seems to be kind of a big year for red state, what happens to the Medicaid expansion in red state um, areas. And I think Ohio is kind of interesting because we haven't seen any state that participates in Medicaid expansion drop it. You know, the closest I'd say is adding on a work requirement, or Kentucky has threatened to drop out um, many times under Governor Bevin, but hasn't well, he, like, done like, it. Like the lieutenant yes. governor, he Bevin ran on dropping it and then, yes, then re- backtracked, I believe, in his exe- in his acceptance speech he election did. night. Yes, he, he pulled off of healthcare.gov, which is a much smaller thing to do than pulling out of Medicaid expansion. So, you know, and I think the politics there are obvious of why it's hard to pull out, because, you know, you're, it's very different to give people something and take that thing away. So, you know, you will, if you do see one of the Republicans win, you know, particularly the lieutenant governor, it'll be interesting to see if they actually follow through. On the other side, you're starting to see this new trend of of attempting to expand Medicaid by ballot initiative. Um, this relates a little bit to my extra credit I'll get to in, in a few minutes. But um, we've seen both organizers in Utah and Idaho who believe they've gathered enough signatures to get on the 2018 ballot. There's another ballot initiative effort in Nebraska, but their signatures aren't due until early July. So it seems like 2018 like could be the year of the Medicaid ballot initiative and um, kind of this new tactic you're seeing hop from state to state. So we so we have these sort of two things going on. On the one hand, you've got states that want to expand Medicaid to, to allow more people in. On the other hand, you've got states that want to expand it, but then add in these work requirements, which in, you know, as you're as you're selling them, it says, you know, well, we're going to we're going to let these, you know, relatively wealthier people, still poor, but not as poor, into the program, but we're going to make sure that they work. And this might be the point to, uh, to add that most people on in the Medicaid expansion already work or they wouldn't have incomes at the level that they do. Um, uh, but it, we, you know, so we have the, the work requirements going on and we have the expansion going on. Is this sort of the 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 equilibrium that we're going to finally see well, on Medicaid? I, I think a lot depends on what happens with this Kentucky lawsuit, which will be here in D.C. in federal court in June. I think that challenging the whole, the heart of of the work requirements idea, saying this violates the purpose of Medicaid. The purpose of Medicaid is to provide health insurance, health insurance to low-income people. That has nothing to do with promoting res- personal responsibility or promoting employment or promoting work. That's not in the statute. And, you know, shoehorning that in violates Congress's original intent here. So we'll see how that argument fares in federal court. And if Kentucky is given the green light, I think you will see a lot of states uh, I mean, there are already a lot of states lining up and, and trying to do work requirements, and three have already been approved, but I think you'll see just a big wave if, if it's allowed to fly. So, so, so more Medicaid to come this year. All right, well, I think we're going to stop there and move on to our extra credit segment. That's where each of us recommends a health story they read recently they think everyone else should read too. Don't worry if you miss one. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. 
I'm going to go first this week because I want to note the passing of Brett Norman, our health reporter colleague from Politico. He died last Saturday of pancreatic cancer at age 43. My extra credit this week is one of Brett's last big stories from 2016, but still completely relevant. It's called Should Doctors Check Your Electric Bill? And it's about the effort to include social services in health care because you can't take care of your diabetes if you can't pay the electric bill for the refrigerator that keeps it cold. And you can't stay on your meds if you don't have a way to get to the pharmacy. Um, thank you, Brett. You will be missed by all of your fellow health policy reporters. Uh, who wants to go next? Sarah? Um, yes. Yeah, so to continue our Medicaid conversation, I want to bring um, sometimes I feel like our listeners might be the people who also wonder, hey, what happened to that Medicaid expansion? Maine passed in November, and I sometimes wonder that. And luckily, uh, Rachna Pradhan at Politico wrote a story about what is happening. And what is happening is kind of the headline of the story is Maine governor defies ballot initiative expanding Medicaid. And basically what's happened in Maine is there was a ballot initiative that passed to expand Medicaid. Um, governor Paul LePage, huge opponent of Medicaid expansion, has not acted on it in any way. And um, it is supposed to take effect in July, but there's no evidence it will. Um, it seems like it'll either be settled with lawsuits or with LePage leaving office and being replaced by somebody else in the fall. But I think it does show one of the, um, you know, I was talking about these ballot initiatives, and I think they are, advocates see them as a good way to expand Medicaid in red states. One of the pitfalls, though, is if you are in a red state that has not expanded Medicaid, it is likely that the governor is not a fan of Medicaid expansion, and you could end up in one of, in a situation like Maine and these other states that are trying to take a page from that playbook. Right, you could end up like Virginia, where the governor was in in support, but the legislature wasn't. Yes. Alice. Yes, I was extremely interested in uh, another piece in Politico by Dan Diamond about um, the intersection of two trends that I've been tracking in the Trump administration, uh, conflicts with Native American rights, which we see tons of in the sort of tribal land space, but this is in the healthcare space, and this intense push for Medicaid work requirements. So the Trump administration has been telling Native American tribes that their members must be subject to these Medicaid work requirements. And the tribes say, whoa, that goes against just hundreds of years of our our tribal sovereignty. We are a separate government and we have government to government relations with the United States. And we are not subject to a lot of your health care laws. For instance, Native Americans were not subject to the individual mandate. Um, and so the Trump administration responding, we don't consider you a sovereign government. We consider you a race. And to exempt you from the work requirement would be an unconstitutional racial preference. That is some very dicey legal territory <laughs> and just a, a huge deal and I think should be getting a lot more attention than it's getting. And probably will. Anna. Um, this is from Allison Kojak at NPR, and she wrote a um, very personal piece, um, How Medicare's Conflicting Hospitalization Rules Cost Me Thousands of Dollars, specifically $12,000. Um, she, Her mom um, had a, a fall, and basically Allison goes through all of, of what happened and how even Allison, who knows, you know, what to look for and what you know, her mom um, needs, a, a, particularly as far as coverage um, for through Medicare, 
goes, um, it she wasn't able to kind of make it all make it work. And so there's these rules about outpatient stay versus inpatient stay. And, um, and we should point out that her mom was in the hospital. Right. She, so she was. Yeah. But, but she, she was she not, still quote unquote, an inpatient. Right. She is still, you know, classified as outpatient. And that affects what happens after you leave the hospital if you need to go to rehab and things like that. And that's how Allison um, ended up writing a $12,000 check. And it's just a fascinating look at how even someone as uh, steeped in healthcare care as, as Allison can have a tough time and, and that these rules are known to be a problem and aren't getting changed is really interesting, too. Yeah, and it, it's one that, that it, it, it was changed for about five minutes, and then they changed it back. Because it, what, it, what it really has to do with is when people leave the hospital um, to go to skilled nursing care. That mm-hmm. that's sort of that that's where the and if you're not if you're not classified as an inpatient, then Medicare won't pay for that because they're afraid that if you go to the hospital even briefly and then you go into nursing home, it will run up Medicare costs. But it yeah it it's it's it it feels to patients extremely arbitrary. It is extremely right. arbitrary. Um, it's a and you know, yet yet another example of uh, of this our our dysfunctional healthcare system <laughs> hitting home. All right, well that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at what the health all one word at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner, at Sarah Cliff. At Alice Olstein. At Anna Edney. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.